All right. Well, we're back, and this is Maddie, and I'm I'm flying solo this week because Chase is out of town. Chase is in Vegas. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's glitter involved. Just saying. Um. Anyway, uh, I just want to give a special shout out to Jarrell. Thanks, Jarrell, as usual for producing our podcast. Thanks to Kendra for the artwork. And thanks to the Urban Lounge for hooking us up with some good microphones, making us sound legit. This week I'm here with Nicole Badera, um, who is currently getting her PhD in sociology at the University of Michigan. Um, but she also has worked with the hospital recovery, ho- hospital response team um, at the Rape Recovery Center here in Salt Lake. So she has seen firsthand what happens um, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself. <laughs> I'll let you go from there. I won't speak for you. <laughs> yeah, so the hospital response team is the group at the Rape Recovery Center that meets victims in the hospital while they're having the rape kits collected. And we're the advocate for the victim. We're also the only confidential people in the room. Anybody else can be subpoenaed to trial, which means that we can access advisors for things like, you know, common questions I would get was, I was high during the time of my sexual assault. Can I say that or will I end up in prison by the mm-hmm. end of the night if I say that I was drinking underage or whatever the issue would be? So, yeah, we were right there. We know exactly what the process is like in Utah, know exactly how strenuous and difficult it is for survivors. and how upsetting it is when, I mean, these these exams can take as short as about an hour, mm-hmm. as long, my longest was over six hours. I've heard of wow. rape kits that took over 24 hours to complete, and I'd say average is between two to four hours. So it's a long time with a very personal exam. Mm-hmm. And so after putting in all the effort, we know exactly how upsetting it is for it to go to nowhere mm-hmm. and not do anything, but just sit on a shelf collecting dust. Yeah, yeah, that's hard. Yeah, (laughs) it is really hard. We're also here with Dara Jones, who works at the University of Utah. Uh, What's your role at the U? I am a sexual assault support advocate in the Center for Student Wellness. So essentially, it is our role to guide any survivors of relationship, sexual, interpersonal violence, through understanding their options Mm -hmm. and our mission is to empower them by giving them choices and supporting whatever decisions they make great Uh, so i just wanted to give a few scary stats to kind of paint the picture for what goes on here in utah um And so the Utah Department of Health is where I got this information. I pulled up that source. Just (laughs) Didn't have it with me earlier. Um, But one in three women uh, will experience some form of sexual violence in their lifetime. And the report that that's based on is from 2007. So, I mean, that's 10 years old. So I'm kind of curious if that's that's changed or if that's stayed the same. Um, But if you look specifically in Utah... Um, studies show that one in eight women in Utah um, will be raped and one in 15 men will be raped in their lifetimes. Um, and so, in the you know, looking at Utah compared to nationally, um, Utah, <laughs> rape is the only violent crime in Utah that occurs at a higher rate than the rest of the nation. Um, and that's been the case since 2000. So, I mean, when you think of Utah, 
what do you, <laughs> what do you think of? You know, you, you don't necessarily think of those sort of um, those sort of statistics. So it's a little it's a little upsetting. And then the majority of rapes aren't even reported. Um, so those numbers aren't even necessarily accurate and kind of reflect the underestimation that goes on there. Um, yeah, so I kind of talked about, I kind of talked about HB 200, um, which was that, right. I imagine you're f familiar with, <laughs> yes. um, so the numbers that I pulled up for that were that 1,751, there were that many unsubmitted sexual assault kits in 2016, um, and approximately 2,700 unsubmitted sexual assault kits in Utah overall. Right. Um, so I think that kind of indicates the need for that sort of legislation that mm -hmm. Angela Romero pushed through. Right. Um, yeah, so I've, I'm just kind of wondering what you guys thought of that legislation and if mm -hmm. that was a step in the right direction. And, um, well, I'll let, you, I'll let you talk about it. Well, and before we do discuss that, I think yeah. another interesting thing to point out and to look at is that Utah is one of two states left that has not signed the uh, Prison Rape Elimination Act. Okay. Um, and that kind of helps put into perspective the fact that, you know, Utah does have higher sexual assault rates um, than the rest of the nation on average. Mm -hmm. And uh, our legislation right now kind of mirrors that. So um, I do think that this is at least um, on a statewide level in a better direction we have a lot of work to do mm -hmm. yeah I, it's really important to be testing rape kits um, because we learn so much when mm -hmm. we test rape kits and not only is it important to be able to do things like identify serial rapists that way but it's also hugely important that we are just affirming survivors experiences mm -hmm. as someone who's been in the room with survivors as they're having these kits administered it's a hugely exhausting process, and it's, it's re-traumatizing. People refer to them as the second rape because right. part of it does involve taking swabs from inside literally every hole in your body, mm -hmm. even some that might not have been touched by the assailant. And so to ask survivors to go through that again after mm -hmm. they've just been traumatized in the first place and then for these rape kits to sit on a shelf is so deeply disrespectful that even just from that symbolic level you know if we think that these rape kits are important enough to ask survivors to participate in them mm -hmm. then we need to follow through and say yes your rape kit is important and yes we want to see what's in there absolutely is there more about the rape kits um that you'd want to tell us about yeah i think it's important that everybody knows what happens yeah when you right. go to the hospital actually before i started my training to work at the rape recovery center i didn't even know that you were supposed to go to the hospital after you'd been sexually assaulted right. and in a lot of cases of sexual assault it wouldn't have ever occurred to me to call the police because it's so normalized as part of rape culture mm -hmm. that unwanted touching i mean think about the way that girls are bullied in middle school it's through the strap the um, hitting of bra straps and you know things like that shame shame or or pantsing things that are actually sexual abuse right mm -hmm. um, but i was shocked to find out what happens during a rape kit so in the state of utah there are a few different people in the room um, a police officer will probably come to take a preliminary statement depending on which area you're in there's some differences across precincts um, there's a sexual assault nurse examiner and she takes pictures and performs the exam to be able to collect the actual evidence and then there's the victim advocate 
who is a member of the hospital response team, who's really just there to care for the survivor, help her make decisions. She's the only confidential person in the room. And that's useful in case somebody mm-hmm. wants to ask a right. question like, oh my God, I was drinking underage. Or like, he gave me alcohol that I didn't realize that there was alcohol in it. Can I get in trouble for that before they tell other people? So this is really great. Um, That the Rape Recovery Center has that. Not all states have something like that. So Mm -hmm. that's something that Utah's doing well. At least in the areas that victim advocates can get to, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So then in terms of what is to be expected for the physical exam, and, and I haven't been doing this job for years, so if there are any huge changes in the past year, I might miss something, <laughs> and anybody, if they can comment or whatever, should update it. But what I would always tell survivors is, first, it's going to be a very invasive questionnaire. Right. Literally, at points, it's going to be as much as, did he put his X into your Y? And you go through every possible body, body part that can be violated, that mm-hmm. would be illegal if it were touched without consent. Then after you do the very long set of questions... That's when you get into the more physical part, which involves things like collecting strands of the victim's hair so that you can tell, like, from her head. And she has to pull out from the root, which is painful. Right. So that they can tell which DNA is hers and which is not. Um, Before she can have anything to eat or drink, you have to swab the inside of her mouth. And I'm using pronouns like her. I mean, this could be a man as well, but overwhelmingly right. the people who are reporting. Predominantly and, women. Yes. The people who are victims and the people who are reporting are predominantly women. Right. Um, but yeah, so she has to have the inside of her mouth swabbed. Um, then after she's that, told not to shower beforehand. Yes, this absolutely is not. An important thing to distinguish because when we disseminate information on what to do after you've been assaulted, um, one of the first things is don't remove your clothes, don't take a shower, don't clean yourself, get yourself to. A medical facility or an emergency room and request a CODAR forensic exam. Um, Most survivors initial instinct is to clean themselves immediately. Mm -hmm. So this adds to the trauma in a big way. They have to remain, you know, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble like finding the words honestly to describe how it feels to remain in the clothes you wore with, you know, potentially dried saliva on you, semen inside of, you know, areas of your body. And you're told, you know, without even it being recognized how that must feel, just stay as is and come on in (laughs) for a four hour invasive exam. Right. And wait for a long time because rape kits are not prioritized particularly highly in emergency rooms. Because other people have medical emergencies that can be life or death. Okay. And so what that means is the survivors have to wait for often a really long time while still literally covered in the physical matter of their rapists. Right. Which you can imagine how disgusting that feels. Um, yeah. So once they're there, they have not been allowed to shower or eat or drink anything. And that's when, ideally in that condition, the swabbing would happen. So you swab the inside of the mouth. Um, you swab anywhere the rapist might have touched. So literally, it's like, did he put his hands on your shoulder? We're going to swab there. Did he put your his hands here? Did he kiss you on your neck? Anything like that. And you swab all of those places, as well as one place where he did not touch, just to try to get, in again, another sample of her DNA. Um, the victim is looked over from head to toe during this process, and any bruise that can't be identified as, oh, yeah, that was from rock climbing or I cut myself shaving, is photographed three times. Mm-hmm. This is incredibly invasive. Um, the survivor has to be naked to be able to do this part of the exam. And there are a lot of strangers in the room, right? 
And so even though, you know, as an advocate, you try to avert your eyes, you can imagine this still feels really uncomfortable. Um, then begins the pelvic exam. So a speculum is used. Well, so first they swab the outside of the vulva and they put a dye on it to try to cling to any broken cells because it can be really difficult to see if there's bruising or anything like that. And that has to sit there for a while with somebody just kind of staring into your vagina, waiting to see has the dye taken, has it not. Okay. Then they insert a speculum to swab inside with multiple different swabs. Um, and then the exam finishes with an anal swab. This whole thing, it sounds, when you, when you say it like that, it sounds relatively quick, um, but it's not. <laughs> it's definitely not. And depending on which precinct you're in, there are other things you have to do too, like um, swabs underneath your fingernails to see if there's any of his skin there, um, taking snippings of your pubic hair to be put away right. forever, things that are incredibly personal, um, not to mention then some of the decisions that are especially difficult for a lot of women in Utah to make about things like whether or not to take Plan B, um, whether or not to test for STDs or to just take the prophylactics right away, which... I'm very much just take the prophylactics that you can, but there are some that are so intensive and so painful. All of these things will make the survivor sick for the next three days. Right. Um, and then if they decide to take an HIV prophylactic, which is only recommended in a specifically high risk case, then she's going to be sick for months because you have to take that medication and you can only get a certain number of doses at a time. So you have to go to a clinic repeatedly and you have to take it. And it makes you, I mean, it's like having the flu for the entire time you're taking the prophylactic. So um, these survivors are going through a lot as part of these exams. That sounds awful. And the fact that somebody would do all that and take all the time to test you in all those ways and like really just put you through that emotionally tumultuous time and then leave it on a shelf for 20 years, that honestly blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, there are a few reasons for it. Some of it is lack of funding and the bill will help with that. But some of that is any police officer across the entire process, any legislator, um, anybody who should be taking this seriously to make sure that we can find out what happens, um, they can end the process at any point. If the first police officer does not think it's a credible report, they don't have to pass it on to their supervisor. Right. It's it's insubordination. They should pass it on to their supervisors, but that does not mean that they do. Hmm. Um, and, and I'm glad that you brought up how just how terrible this sounds. Um, and I'm glad that you followed it up mm -hmm. with how these cases can be dismissed. Um, and I'd like to bring up how often people, the myth of how often false reports of rape yeah. are, are submitted and false allegations of rape because people are very quick to believe the myth that um, many survivors that many survivors um, report false allegations of rape, or in their view, not survivors, many women essentially falsely report rape. Um, how likely do you really think it is that someone who goes through this process is doing it for some sort of malicious intent? And I'm not saying that that never happens because I don't wanna be all encompassing here, but how likely with the 2,700 kits that are sitting there untested, how many of those do you think are malicious, upset women who are trying to target and defame men? 
It is extremely unlikely. Um, so we know that the false reporting rate for sexual assault is the same as all other violent crimes. Right. And that some of the reports that women will say are false probably are not false, but instead they are being pressured or abused. Mm -hmm. And then they feel that they have to rescind their report. For so, their safety. For their safety, yes. It is extremely unlikely that these reports are false. And, and something I always say about false allegations, because I get this question a lot when I'm working with fraternity men, like, what about the falsely accused? Because um, they'll say, you know, what if I have sex with a girl and it's consensual and the next day she says it wasn't? I'm like, it probably wasn't. Yeah. Because if somebody <laughs> if wants to... <laughs> well, and if somebody wants to accuse you of sexual assault falsely, they do not need to have sex with you first. Right. They could just make the allegation, especially because a lot of cases, I mean, a rape kit is part of it, but it's such a short window for when you can get an effective rape kit. Mm -hmm. It's about two weeks, and often people don't recognize that sexual assault is sexual assault for years after the fact. So mm -hmm. um, so if you think, for example, child abuse cases, it's pretty rare that you're going to collect any evidence that way. Right. And so these stories of like, well, this teenage girl, like, what did she make up? Why is she trying to go after this man and her family? She's probably not making it up. If there was sexual contact, right. you know, then there was, it's probably not consensual. There's no reason to do it otherwise. Um, but no, false allegations are exceptionally rare. And especially to go through this much physical brutality on your body, I cannot imagine very many people who would go through it for kicks and giggles. I, I just have never understood that argument. Right. I'm reminded of actually an instance when I was in freshman year uh, talking to a guy who was a member of fraternity and uh, they were dealing with a girl who was accusing one of their lead macho bros of uh, rape but he was going off about how she stayed the next morning and like made breakfast for him and her and stuff and she like had made and he kept just being like why would she hang around if she'd been raped why would she hang around and I wasn't educated on the topic at all so i really wasn't trying to console him but i do remember that him and his brothers were making a very big distinction about the fact that she had like kind of stuck around and had conversation with them the next morning and i think what they expect when they see a like a rape victim is some like slobbering crying like right. like tiny person on the ground who can't stand up because their muscles are super weak and i I think that image is one of, and they think they're good people because they've never caused that to happen in mm -hmm. their opinion. It's like, what? Yeah, that's a really classic rape myth is yes. that survivors will immediately be upset or, I, I mean, they probably are upset to a degree, but the way that that manifests that you can see it is completely different for different people. Absolutely. And something like staying and cooking breakfast, that makes perfect sense to me. If oh, you yeah. still feel that you're in danger and you're trying to make sure that you're safe, you want to keep that assailant happy comfortable you want them to not think that you suspect them that you're on to them and you know what they did because you're still in their home right and especially in a place like a fraternity yours <laughs> right well and especially a place in a fraternity where there are a lot of other men around you don't know who else is violent who else is dangerous that that story does not surprise me in the slightest but these rape myths about how survivors should act afterwards really do affect the way police handle sexual assault reports um it was common to hear police officers say things like, I don't know if I really believe her because she's texting a lot, which to me is confusing because if I had been sexually assaulted and I'm stuck in this room by myself because you can't really bring that many people with you to this. Mm -hmm. And if you're going pretty quickly, you didn't really have time to wait two hours for your mom to get off of work. You probably are texting a lot of people to stay in contact with them. They're probably helping you stay calm. But some Grounded. people look. Yeah. And mm -hmm. some people look at that and just say. This is evidence that she's just like tweeting her friends like she's she's fine. She made it up and it isn't true. 
And that makes it really hard to report, especially if the police officer says in the room things like, well, we don't know what happened to you, but if something bad happened, I guess I should ask you this question. And I've heard officers say things like that. Right. And, you know, it's important also to educate anyone who can and will listen about the neurobiological effects of trauma. Um, trauma's impact on the, on the brain is immense and it affects behavior in very different ways. We often talk about fight or flight, but we don't talk about freeze. There is a third reaction to experiencing trauma and it is freeze. And it is your brain saying, I need to survive. I'm going to do anything and everything to survive. And if you're in a room with someone who's raping you, you might not want to agitate this person further because if they're capable of raping you, what else might they do? And those effects of trauma are long lasting. They, they have immediate short term effects and then there are long term effects. So it's not uncommon to see, you know, a victim in a hospital room behaving calm or behaving, you know, maybe they're laughing, maybe they are. Um, maybe they are crying. Maybe they do look like that perfect victim that that doesn't actually exist, right? <laughs> Thank yeah. you, level. Well, and I, I can't think of a single survivor I ever saw in the hospital who cried for the entire, you know, four-hour exam. Right. Because you run out of tears. And you run out of energy. <laughs> yes. It's, it's too hard. And um, I always think about... The way that, you know, if you're, you're at a funeral somewhere where you're not supposed to laugh, you just have so much pent up emotional energy that you find yourself giggling at silly things. And I see that, you know, firsthand with survivors all the time. In fact, I, it was so common and the survivors would feel so bad about it and like they weren't going to be believed that I started making that a regular feature of my time with them was telling jokes, trying right. to make them laugh and saying, people are going to tell you you're never allowed to laugh or else this didn't happen to you. And I'm telling you, I know this happened to you. And you're allowed to laugh and you're allowed to be happy again. And then you're allowed to be really depressed and really upset and cry about it later if that's what you need. Whatever you feel is fine. But yeah, everybody reacts to trauma in really different ways. The rape myths are, they're horrific. They're horrific. And very harmful. Yeah. I'm curious about Utah specifically. And if you think that the culture in Utah is different, you know, like, like what, what causes these higher incidences in Utah compared to other places around the country? You know, it's hard to say, it's... but one thing we do know about the perpetration of sexual assault is it's easier in really masculine settings where toxic masculinity is on display, where hyper-masculinity is normative. We know that's where sexual assault can flourish. And Utah consistently ranks as one of the worst states in the country for women. This is a place where we don't have as many women in in our Congress, we don't have as many women on corporate boards. We don't have as many women in all sorts of places. The priesthood, for example. Right. We're in a very patriarchal culture in Utah, especially in comparison to the rest of the U.S. And so just like if all of the men in fraternities are there hanging out with each other and they take care of each other and they think about masculinity in those ways, you're going to see a very similar thing in Utah. I also think that women in Utah are perhaps especially vulnerable because of the lack of sex education. And so there right. are times... Ding, ding, ding. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are times that if you know more, you would be able to get out sooner. I've done interviews with survivors of sexual assault and many of them were sexually assaulted multiple times and they start to realize, oh, this wasn't normal. And then they can recognize what's happening to them immediately. But here's the, here's the catch. If they have already been assaulted, 
their brain goes into that trauma mode and they freeze and they can't leave even though they know it's wrong. Whereas if they'd found out that that treatment was not acceptable and that they deserved egalitarian sexual relationships on their terms and to be respected, they could notice that things weren't okay early and get out of there mm -hmm. before a traumatic response takes over. I mean, I kind of brought back to thinking about what you were saying earlier. You were saying that the police officer, if he doesn't believe these women who aren't well-educated as a, like a general uh, population already on what's happening and what sexual assault against them looks like, you're telling me that usually police officers are men, especially here in Utah, that a man has probably most likely perpetrated this crime against her and then a man can stop her from getting justice just by the sheer thought that she might be tweeting, oh, she's texting her friend, she's fine. And so a man can then stop her from getting justice in any way because he's not educated at all. It's not yeah. for just those reasons. Um, this actually goes a lot deeper. It's a huge issue. A lot of times when we have men investigating or adjudicating these cases of perpetration, if they see similar behavior that they have engaged in, um, they think, well, I have done this and I'm not a rapist. So this person is, um, they are blameless in this situation. That makes so much sense. They are falsely accused because, wow, this is what she's alleging. I've done that before. So this guy can't be a rapist. That's and nuts. cases get dismissed and uh, sentencing and sanctioning gets um, minimized for perpetrators because of, because, you know, men are in charge of, because men are in charge. Can I say that? I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you and can it's, say it's, whatever you want. <laughs> it's true as well. There's some research that would indicate that the vast majority of rapists do not think that they are rapists. So they'll give them these surveys um, where they will describe a bunch of things that would count as rape and say, have you done this? How many times? And men will be like, yeah, I've done that. I've done that. And then the last question is, have you ever raped anyone? They're like, oh, no. Even though literally if you look at the form, the behaviors they've described participating in are legally rape. Right. So we know that a lot of assailants don't think of themselves as predators. I mean, think of Donald Trump, for example. Right. Donald Trump thinks of what he does to women, where he's talking about sexually assaulting women, as simply locker room talk. And I legitimately believe that he probably believes that, mm -hmm. that he thinks that this is okay, this is acceptable, all of his friends do it, and rape is a stranger in the bushes coming out of nowhere and maliciously right. attacking someone. But that's which, not what rape is. Which I mean, it can be, but it rarely is. Right. And just in itself, having him as a leader and in charge of things like the White House Task Force Against Sexual Assault, it becomes scary because those issues that are raised and addressed with the White House Task Force Against Sexual Assault mm -hmm. are behaviors he might recognize and not think are issues. So we could do a lot of rolling back on some progress that we've made over the last eight years. I miss Joe Biden. Me too. <laughs> Although Hashtag we got to say Joe Biden wasn't always the most respectful of women's bodies either. Agreed. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. there are all the memes about creepy Uncle Joe because he's giving women massages or kissing them on the cheek. And, and those things aren't appropriate either. Right. So even the men who are often our best allies and are doing things like helping to pass the Violence Against Women's Act, which we need, right. sometimes their own behavior is not appropriate either. And right. It's hard. I can't imagine if you sat down with Joe Biden. People, I'm sure, have said to him, you know, you shouldn't really touch women this way. And he's continuing to say, oh, no, I think it's okay. And when men are in positions of power, or women for that matter, they get to designate what is and is not okay and how they want to adjudicate the process. It yeah. doesn't have to match the policy at all. Mm -hmm. Well, now I don't miss Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs>
We can miss well, the work that he did that was good for the rest of us and also hope that he yeah. stops touching women inappropriately. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, and, and this is kind of reminding me of another, and I, I'm kind of switching gears here a little bit. So, you know, pull it back to any point that you'd like to pull it back to. Um, and I'm not calling or accusing Joe Biden of what I'm about to talk about, but I think a lot of men choose target-rich environments like the world of sexual assault response and prevention to take up space so that they can understand how to perpetrate more effectively. Um, you, I don't know if you have read The Woke Misogynist. It's an article by... Um, I can't remember her name right now. I want to cite her. I want to give her credit for her work. So when someone else is speaking, I will look up her name. But it's about men who brand themselves as feminist, who attempt to do feminist work in some cases, and then who use their power that they've gained and the voice that they've gained within those movements to get close to women and perpetrate violence against them and to sexually assault them. Um, and to excuse their behaviors and justify their behaviors. And those are sometimes the most um, sinister perpetrators because no one will ever believe that such a feminist man could perpetrate such violence. Um, and they are going to have the masses on their side. They're a much bigger wolf to go up against. Yeah, I, I mean, to put this in simple terms, you know, when you see that somebody says that they're a feminist on Tinder as a man, it's, it's an immediate red flag. And women know Absolutely. that now because a lot of the men that use those labels and are trying to be involved in these movements are doing it because they have ulterior motives. Not all. Absolutely not all. Right, right. But I still would raise an eyebrow at any man who is saying too loud and proud that he's a feminist because of the sort of thing that's Do you want to know when the, the line in the sand is for me? Where, yeah, where's your line in the sand? It's typically when a male feminist tries to mansplain feminism to me. Yes. Or tries, <laughs> if we're having a conversation about feminism or the oppression that women face specifically, and he takes up more time and space in that conversation or corrects anything that I know because I'm a professional in this work, this is what I've dedicated my life to, so I'm pretty sure I know better. Um, but when they try to correct me or when they try to mansplain something to me or when they're talking too much about it, I'm like, red flag, no second date. <laughs> <laughs> And The Woke Misogynist was written by Nona Willis Arnowitz. Aron Aronowitz. There we go. Sorry. Nona Willis Aronowitz. There you go. But this is one of the things that's so frustrating about how little support there is for survivors from the criminal justice system is here we are sitting around a table, the group of women, and we're talking about stories of things that we have to be on our guard about whether or not we'll be sexually assaulted by somebody you're going on a second date with who right. says that they're a feminist. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of work that women in particular are doing all the time to stay safe. All we're asking in response, I mean, we could ask for a lot more, but right mm -hmm. now all we're talking about is for the state to test the rape kits when things have already gone wrong yeah. and women have already been deeply traumatized. Men have also been deeply traumatized. So it's really frustrating that women are doing this much work and then it's taken this long mm -hmm. to get to a point where right. the state is going to uphold their responsibility to enforcing the criminal code. So as a whole culture, uh, that's just incredibly frustrating. I would say that the whole, sh uh, what is it, wolf in sheep's clothing oh, metaphor yeah. that yeah. applies here. Um, that's the picture on the top of the article, actually. Wolf <laughs> in a pussy hat. A wolf yeah. in a, yeah. Well, in the history, and in the history of, I think, the United States especially, you've seen 
um, traditionally white men, who recognize their enemies or people who are like nemeses in, in business in the corporate environment falling to these tr these traps of society where suddenly they're being held accountable for their actions. So they decide to evolve in the sense like get that good PR out there. Right. Yeah. Perfect example is the CEO of Uber who just brought on Ariana Huffington to their board to try to look more pro-female, mm -hmm. more feminist after complaints about rampant harassment by Uber drivers and problems of sexism within the company. Yes, we've seen this tactic time and time again. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. They care about retaining the power that they hold. Right. That's a really astute observation. Good points. Well, and then even I think a lot of the men who are doing the work as police officers or judges or attorneys, I don't even know that they got into the profession in an insidious way to be like, I'm going to help other rapists get off. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know very many police officers. I mean, at all. But of the ones that I do know, if you talk to them about the reasons for why they wanted to become police officers, it's usually not to support rape victims. And even the training for police officers, there's almost no training for victims of gendered violence. Um, the last I heard, it was under an hour was average mm -hmm. for different police departments. And so they just don't even know what to do in the room. And they're coming in with all of these biases. Right. They live in a patriarchal society. It's not surprising it isn't going well, even if they have good intentions. Mm -hmm. I actually remember uh, an exact moment when you were giving a talk at Westminster, uh, I think my senior year, and there was a former police officer there who stood up and was just like, I was in the police force for years, and let me tell you, they are not teaching anything about this. And he was real riled up, I think, because his daughter had been raped. And which brings me back to actually another point. Whenever anyone uses the the claim that, what if this happened to your daughter, your your mom, <laughs> right, or your right, grandma, right. or anything like that? I'm just like, what if you were violently assaulted? What if? that just happened to you would you want that to happen it's not a matter of like you have to know a girl to care about this happening if there were no yeah. women other groups of men would take diff power differentials and then would be more subjected to rape Raping oh, that's already happening stop. right it yeah. is happening we already it's happening see men. to trans folks it's yeah. happening to anyone who because rape and sexual assault are crimes of control, they're not crimes of lust or passion. They're crimes of control, and they are a means of holding power over others. It, you know, it doesn't matter who, you know, if it's women or not, whoever is more vulnerable will be the target. And we see this even among hierarchies of men. Right. Uh, we were talking about gang rapes of women in fraternities before, but fraternities also rape men within their ranks yes. or from lower ranking fraternities. We know that a lot of sexual violence happens on athletic teams, especially, I mean, you hear the headline news about the high school students who are sexually assaulting other people on their football teams and things like that. Men are absolutely victims of sexual violence. Um, but one thing that's so difficult is I, I feel like it takes that experience a lot of the time for a man to try to empathize with what it would feel like to be sexually violated. Right. And I don't think that's a sustainable way to go about this. I don't think all men should have to be sexually assaulted to care about sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And so it's important for men to practice that exercise of empathy of imagining, or you know what, not even imagining. I kind of don't care if you don't, if you get it or not. If somebody comes to you and says, I'm hurting, this is a terrible thing that's happening to people like me in society, care about this issue. I'd like to think we can say, I trust you. I trust that you know what's best for your body, and I want to support you in making sure this terrible thing isn't happening anymore. Right.
And, you know, I think it's also important to really hit home here on the problem, which is toxic masculinity. Men are doing, you know, we're talking right now about the demographics of, of victims and survivors. We need to talk about the demographics of those perpetrating the violence, and that is that they are men. They are men. Um, and yes, there is a very, very small percentage of perpetrators who are not cis men. Um, and that it needs to be discussed and, and deconstructed in its own way. But I still feel like I need to say that, and I shouldn't. I should be able to just say, you know what? The most conservative study says 88%, and the most liberal study says 95% of perpetrators are cis men. Why do I feel like I need to have a disclaimer on this before I mm -hmm. call it out? Why aren't we having more conversations? You know, the demographics can change of who the victims are, but it's pretty steady that men and toxic masculinity are the problem here. And when I say this, it's going to upset people. When a male person says this and calls attention to it, they get patted on the back. Joe Biden. Right. right. So yeah. when Joe Biden says this, when Joe Biden calls attention to this, he is patted on the back. He's told what a great feminist he is. And when I say it, I'm a man-hating bitch. That is the truth. Mm -hmm. And I've experienced that firsthand in all of, you know, in my years of work with this, I have experienced this. Uh, one of the things that blows my mind is that my little brother is in the Navy, and I've looked up uh, statistics on just women in the armed forces. And when you bring up toxic, mascul toxic masculinity, and I totally respect women who go into the military because they're not going into the military thinking like, oh, I might die over in, uh, in Iraq or I might die over in Afghanistan. They're like, no, there's like a really, really solid chance that people who are supposed to have my back in armed conflict will rape me and right. no one will ever do anything about it. And I will be expected to cover them when they're being shot at. Like I honestly i don't know how more women aren't just lobbing grenades into like bunkers when they're and then just walking out of walking out with their <laughs> fingers to the sky because that's nuts well you know it's amazing because what that makes me think of is how people are like why aren't there more women fighting back when they're being sexually assaulted and i mean it's it's baffling because you'd think that somebody's attacking you you would fight back but women when they do fight back sometimes end up you know i've heard of cases in the university system where as somebody who's a survivor of violence will have used violence to try to fight back as an assault was happening and then her assailant will make a counterclaim against her and she'll face sanctions on campus for fighting back um, we cannot win no if a woman who's been sexually assaulted in the armed forces decides to take physical retaliation in the way that you're describing she would end up in trouble for that and absolutely nothing would ever have happened to that man either way and so I mean, domestic violence is another perfect example where there are lots of women who are in relationships that are so violent that they're concerned that they're going to die in those relationships. But if they take action to try to take care of themselves, and especially if it's lethal action, they will be the ones who end up facing charges, even if they've already called the police in the past and their assailant has never seen mm -hmm. anything before. So it's really a chronic problem of not believing women. And when women yep. try to stand up for themselves saying, no, that's absolutely not okay. But there's really no way to be a good victim in that case, because if you don't fight back, well, then why didn't you fight back? And then if you do fight back, oh, my God, I can't believe that you fought back like that. You are such a bully. You know, just whatever people are going to say. 
And the, the system that we create that helps this rape culture thrive and helps this problem to continue is the cycle of toxic masculinity and not believing women. You put those two things together, which we definitely have no shortage of those two mm -hmm. um, in our society and in the world, you have a rape culture. That is the recipe for a rape culture. And this is why we have an epidemic that has been going on for thousands of years. Right. Well, and I actually, I think I even have a good story. If we want to hear like a story that'll make us feel better. I mean, you never by get to do means. that with sexual violence. Yeah, by all means. Um, Please. <laughs> one of the keys to this really is believing women when they come forward. And we do have a start by believing initiative in Utah, which is exciting and so great. Um, but even Angela Romero was part of that too, wasn't she? Rip. I feel like I've seen her name. I think she's participated in it at the very least. Right. The yes. I'm not entirely sure because all of that frenzy of excitement happened right as I was leaving the state. But, um, well, so even young men are more likely, from my experiences, and this is not scientific, this is just me working with a lot of men and feeling like this is what works as an educator, they seem more likely to care about sexual violence when it comes from the mouths of women, but in a very specific, restricted way. So the story I'm going to tell is when I was working with a fraternity at the University of Maryland, and they were a really difficult fraternity. Uh, they were coming late, you know. So at that university, there's a program that the fraternities can opt into where they spend 10 weeks over the course of the semester learning about gendered violence and learning about how to prevent it. And it, it's like quite a rigorous course, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the fraternities choose to participate because not all of their members have to do it. Only between 7 and 14 can participate in the program. Mm -hmm. And then it meets their requirement for sexual assault prevention work. So that's why they're choosing to do it. But none of them really want to be there. Um, Just real quick, I would love to have been in like the think tank room when they were like, we don't need to make all of the fraternity brothers learn about sexual violence. Which if ones we, are going to go? If we infest <laughs> them with 7 to 14, we should be able to turn the cell. Well, mm -hmm. so there's actually a story behind it. So... There was the fraternity on that campus that was participating in gang rape. And the way that they found out that it was an initiation was a group of men came together. They all were like, yeah, this is kind of wrong. And there were actually men in the fraternity that chose to report to end the process. And this was, wow. it's kind of amazing, right? Like it's one of those things where you go, oh, wow, this is, uh, this is remarkable. And one of those men did a lot of work making sure that, um, so there's a project called the Clothesline Project where survivors can share stories and their reactions to rape on t-shirts that are held on clotheslines. And a lot of university campuses participate, mm -hmm. including Maryland's. And one of the men who'd been involved in the process of bringing the, the fraternity down and getting them caught for what happened insisted that all of the t-shirts by the, the gang rape victims would be hung every year for the rest of the school, like forever. Um, instead of the fraternity trying to cover it up, he was like, this is something terrible we did and everybody needs to know. They need to be aware. So there are some really good men out there, wow. right? Mm -hmm. I know. We have some good stories. We need Literally. them training all the other men. <laughs> and some of the them are. Laundry. Some of them are. Uh, well, and so the idea behind this program was that at any given time, there are probably 10 men in a fraternity that would have a problem with gang rape. There are probably 10 men that would think that it's not okay if their brothers are sexually assaulting women. And so if you put those 10 men together, which is why it would be voluntary, mm -hmm. to try to get the men who actually are, have the greatest propensity to care mm -hmm. into the room, then if something bad starts to happen, they will be willing to tell. Like that a watchdog system. Right. Um, unfortunately, though, a lot of the fraternities did it a little bit differently where they would like require all of their first years as part of pledging to be the ones that would go to the training 
so it didn't work out exactly how it was planned, but that's where the idea came from, which is actually kind of a beautiful story. As beautiful of a story as it can be when it starts with a gang rape, right? Right. Um, right. So there's still some horrific stuff in here, um, including that the women were afraid to come forward because they thought no one would believe them. But when I was working with this group of men, they were doing things like just coming really late. They at times got quite hostile and aggressive towards me when I was saying things that they didn't like. Specifically, I was working with the fraternity that had done the gang rape that caused the program to be a thing and so when they would you know pat themselves on the back for having a really good lesson that day I'd be like yeah I mean you're the fraternity that this program was made for so <laughs> don't pat yourself on the back too hard oh, yeah. Yeah, you're humble, but, you know. uh, yes and those are the things that would really upset them well so after a really difficult meeting that turned at almost fragility, fragility. fragility. Well, and i was concerned it was going to turn violent at a point because i said you know you all are kind of acting like you're the good guys in this room and really any one of you has the capacity to rape somebody and so you need to think of yourselves not only as the good guy bystanders but you need to really reflect on your own actions and one of the men was like don't you dare fucking call me a rapist ever again and lunged at me and then after I, I know just an assaulter right the story oh just gets toxic. better right it toxic masculinity well mm -hmm. and then when i you know stood up to be like you don't do that to me then three more men stood up to take his back and so you know what actually got them to break down and to calm down and let everything chill out was i started crying i just burst into tears and i sat back down and de-escalated and they were all like what just happened i'm like i mean exactly what used to happen in the basement of this house right where one man decides that he's going to be violent towards a woman and you come to protect your brothers, not even thinking about whether or not he's in the right. That's exactly what just happened. Wow. And so for our final week of the program, which was the next week, I realized, you know, some of my friends were like, don't go back into that room. You know, they're not going to listen to you because you're a woman. Look at the way they treat you. Look at the way they disrespect you. And I said, you know what? I think that there are things I can give them because I am a woman. Mm -hmm. And so I asked, you know, just on Facebook, some of my friends to bring forward their stories and just record, you know, a five minute story about being sexually assaulted. I asked that it was done, with, you know, five years ago or more because that was when the gang rapes were happening in that fraternity. And so I said, you know, just say your first name so that you're human to them brief description of what happened to you and then tell me how your like your sexual assault whatever it was how it still affects you today at least five years later and so they listened to four of them at the first one they were really resistant they were like we don't believe that like that's too sensational you know i why wouldn't people have believed her if that was true people would believe her which is kind of circular reasoning mm -hmm. but after they heard four women's stories and i just had them treat it like they were sociologists and i said i want you to write down on paper anything you found surprising and anything that you're noticing are patterns across these four stories and by the end some of the men were literally crying and they said i just never really realized how much rape hurt and so once they had an opportunity, <laughs> Dara just made a face like, how did you not realize yeah. that? And, and I feel that way too, but I also feel like they've been taught from a young age to empathize with men who are falsely accused. Right. They're watching ESPN oh, and yeah. they're hearing these conversations about their favorite athletes they look up to who are being accused of sexual assault and everyone talking about how it's ruining their career and it's so unfair. That's what young men have taught, have been taught to empathize with. So if we can teach them to understand women's perspectives, the things that stuck out to them really surprised me. So, you know, one of the women who told her story, she was, had to study really hard for the LSAT because after she'd been sexually assaulted, her grades slipped and she didn't have the grades right. to get into the law school she wanted to go to. So she's like, I need a perfect LSAT score. And some of the men in the room were like, oh my God, I'm studying for the LSATs. It is so hard and it would be so unfair if it were hard for a reason that I didn't cause. And so I was amazed by what spoke to them, but it really did. And 
I was impressed by some of the things that they were willing to do once they'd had that realization, including right. things like throwing sober parties that were well lit, which is something you would mm -hmm. never expect a really cool fraternity to agree to do. Right. So there's hope if we listen to women <laughs> yeah. is what I think. And I think, you know, I, I might be like the, the wet blanket on this conversation, but <laughs> I just noticed myself having um a lot a lot of negative reactions when you told your positive story just yeah and maybe that is because i'm i'm constantly well and you are too but hearing these stories from the victims perspectives all day every day at work um but thinking about of course of course it's what would be hard for them that, that makes them relate out. and i'm yeah. like this is part of the problem of of m toxic masculinity is it's entitlement and selfishness and fragility um and those things combining so it, it it makes sense to me that a hard a harder time taking the lsats would resonate more with them than a violent traumatic rape but i don't think they have the cognitive category to understand it in any other way because if, if you've never been afraid of sexual violence if you've never been hurt in that way I think it's hard for people to empathize. Yeah. But one thing I will say that also stuck out to them was, you know, of course, we've been having this fight for an entire semester about how I'm like, well, any of you could be a rapist. I don't know. So I'm going to treat you all like you have the propensity to rape, which is very controversial. Yes. Yeah. And then they heard these stories. And of course, they were all acquaintance rape because what is it? 78 percent of sexual assaults mm -hmm. and the assailant knows the victim. And they were just shocked because they were like, oh, my God, like this person was in their family. This was a best friend. And then by the end of it, the, what they ended up saying, they were like, we totally see how women don't know whether or not they can trust us. Right. And we totally see how it is our job to act so differently from sexual predators that you can tell. And we have to do the work to convince you mm -hmm. that we're good men. And that to me, I was like, okay, I'm, I wish that it had been easier <laughs> for me to just say, yes, I can't tell you whether or not you're good men. And so you need to prove it to me. I wish they would have taken me at my word originally, but I, I will also take the progress wherever it comes from. Right, absolutely. And I'll be as pragmatic as I have to be, but the point is men, listen to women. We're not we're not lying to you. Yeah. We're telling you things that are really important. And and there are a lot of things you're not hearing when you don't listen. So it's better that you do. How do you think that could translate to Utah culture? Do you think it could, you know, yeah. like do you think education in I mean we talked about education before and just even sex ed and improving the type of sex ed that happens here in Utah. Right. Um, I, I, I want to be optimistic and <laughs> see good things happening. Um, but I imagine it, it'll take time. To yes. Do. Yes. And um, that, that's the thing is, is it will take a lot of time. Um, and I don't even know what the long-term effect of this, you know, intervention was with these men. It's hard mm -hmm. to say for sure what works. Right. But we got to start somewhere. And one thing that we can do is put women in positions of power. So men are used to hearing from women as voices mm -hmm. of authority. Because if we, you know, if every president we've had is a man, which happens to be the case, we're used to hearing men say things that we don't understand, whether it's about policy or whatever kind of government process, and just taking him at his word because he's the president. Mm -hmm. You trust the president, regardless mm -hmm. of who it is. And if you've never seen women in those roles, then there's really nowhere outside of, you know, your own interactions with women where women are being undercut by men 
the entire time which, to think of them as voices of authority. Right, which totally reaffirms the reason that a lot of men say, well, I have a mother and a, and a daughter and a sister, mm-hmm. so I care about this issue. Like, this right. is one of the reasons, because there aren't a lot of, you know, important women in power who are given opportunities enough to be showing up in these, you know, in people's minds and brains as human. Right. It, it's dehumanizing when we have men in these positions of power and women not. And yeah. I just want to bring up, because I think that this was a very casual thing that was said during the campaign trail that is actually really illuminating towards how a general, like our general society thinks. Mm-hmm. When men in power are confronted with the reality of rape has happened or rape happens in one in four women, it's immediately poised in the in the in the uh, context of well Mexicans rape and black people rape right. and mm-hmm. not these good white men who you see working at the LDS business college or Ma. not these great bishops who are honestly good members of their community it's immediately when there's a tragedy that someone is faced with or like a part of society that's just actually real that they have to be faced with they they assume that those who look like them aren't the ones perpetrating this violence, aren't the ones perpetrating any kind of injustice. Drives me insane. Right, and the right. stakes are higher for men of color. Like they are mm-hmm. held more accountable. Um, oh yeah, Brock Turner got three months. Imagine if that if Brock Turner had looked like me. Well, you there, know, there are, was another case. Yeah, there yeah. are other cases where black men have been found responsible and have been, um, the word is. Uh, sentenced and their sentences are vastly larger and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be I think that when white men perpetrate and their swimming picture is in the news and when black men perpetrate and their mugshot is in the news are the most unflattering possible you can totally see the dynamic so when the stakes are higher for men of color they're less likely to perpetrate honestly because they have more to lose if they are ever held accountable whereas white men get away with whatever the fuck they want so they have you know and, and this is also my own experiences in my work but met white men are more likely to perpetrate because they have more entitlement they have more power dynamics they it's easier yeah yeah, and I'm not saying black men and, and Mexican men and men of color or, or any other identities are let are like, you know, not ever going to rape. Yeah, absolutely. There is actually research that finds that when it comes to a point of sentencing or whether or not a, a claim of sexual assault is taken seriously by the police, um, if the man is black, it's much more likely that it will end in conviction or even lead to a detective interview. And white men seem to get the benefit of the doubt in a way that men of color just don't. Um, it's, yeah, it's really, it's really horrific. Um, and on the point of black women, there's also research that finds that if the victim is a white woman, she's more likely to be taken seriously than if the victim is a black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, people assume that black women are promiscuous or they must have liked it. And it's all based in racist sexual stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of stuff has got to stop. Right. And they're completely left out of the conversation in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And uh, especially when it is a white woman who has been uh, raped by a black man, um, the the accountability is just the differential between the accountability in that circumstance, whereas if a white man had raped a black woman is, if you look into some of these cases, it's shocking. Mm-hmm. All right, well, thanks for that conversation and thanks for coming, Nicole and Dara, and, and talking with me here.
Um, and as usual, you can follow us on Facebook, Alliance for a Better Utah, or you can follow us on Twitter, at Better Utah. Um, and just keep an eye out for our next podcast. And thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you.